0: The year is 1999. The Y2K crisis looms over us all as the world's population for the first time surpasses 6 billion. Since many feel that there's not a lot of time left, Many throw caution to the wind and embrace the fashions of crop tops, capri pants, and frosted tips as the hottest new fashion trends. Old Navy was the coolest place to shop, which meant that you could be fashionable and still afford the average cost of a house at $131,000. And with gas at $1.22 a gallon, it was easy to get around. Britney Spears skips class in her mega-hit music video, Baby, one more time, while Napster, Furby's The Euro, and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire make a big splash when introduced to the world stage, along with the newest Russian president, Vladimir Putin. To top it all off, there were some Academy Awards given out to the Best Films of 1999, and that's where we take our story next. Welcome to Reelin' In In The Years, the film podcast that aims to dust off the gems and kick out the trash to find the snubs and flubs of Oscar night's past. My name is Matt, I'll be your podcast host, let's hit the rewind button all the way back to 1999 and start the show. Welcome to 1999, everyone. If Y2K was the end of times, then in film terms, it wasn't the worst way to go out. Many hits, classics, and cult favorites came out in the final year of the millennium and should make for a very fun discussion today. Here at Reel In In The Years, we aim to take a critical look at Oscar's past to reconsider those choices and to maybe give out awards that are today a little bit more fitting. But before we do that, it's important to get a little bit of context. So with that in mind, let's start with Oscar Knight itself confusingly dubbed Oscars 2000 and already a side note here when we discuss an Oscar year we are talking about the year the films came out not the year the physical ceremony was held the fact that they were called Oscars 2000 when it was clearly all 1999 films annoys me and no I will not let this go already this podcast is off the rails let's try and get it back on track so Oscars 2000 for 1999 films Either way, it's the 72nd Academy Awards, and it ushered in a new millennium. See, it turned out that the end was not so nigh, after all. And because we all had to change all the numbers on the year date for the first time in, like, I don't know, a thousand years, the Academy figured it should change as well, and sought to revamp the award show in order to make it shorter, sleeker, and more attractive to younger viewers. This, by the way, will be a theme we see a lot. To do this, they, of course, had to bring in fresh-faced Teen heartthrob sex symbol, Billy Crystal, to host for his seventh time to sing show tunes from the 60s, once again showing that the Academy knows exactly what the kids are looking for. Ladies and gentlemen, your host for the 72nd Annual Academy Awards, Billy Crystal! While it might seem to be more of the same, actually the Oscars went pretty well and was seen as a success by most critics, with the San Francisco Examiner even calling the broadcast techno-chic and downright hip with the LA Times calling Crystal the perfect antidote to the self-seriousness of the attendees. To be fair, while Oscar mainstay Burt Bacharach uh, arranged the musical numbers, he mostly eschewed the classic orchestra for a more techno-pop soundtrack, and with guest spots from Queen Latifah, Ray Charles, Gloria Estefan, and Oh Yeah. In sync themselves, it helped to spice up the song and dance portion of the evening. Even the all-important Nielsen ratings, which measure how many people are tuned in to watch the broadcast, uh, was a 3% increase from last year, backing up the fact that this was a good ceremony. It would even go on to win a Primetime Emmy Award and an additional 9 nominations uh, for its live broadcast. All in all, it was probably the best case scenario for the planners of the event, especially considering the crazy events that unfolded before. In a near disastrous scandal, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, or AMPAS, AMPAS for short, misplaced and missent over 4,000 ballots sent to Academy members, all ending up in the small regional distribution center in Bell, California, hurrying to fix their mistake Ampest extended the voting deadline to be due just three days before the show, forcing crew and counters to scramble in a mad dash to make sure everything was in place. I can't help but picture in a weird alternate universe where, instead of trying to get into politics, Donald Trump tries to get into producing movies instead. Uh, This is right up his alley. I can see him having a heyday with this. They're throwing away the ballots, folks. The ballots, they've all disappeared. Wanna know why? Because they were sent... Not to the good states of Nebraska, which I won, by the way, but to California, Crooky California. Lion Nancy Pelosi—that's what I call her. Lion Nancy Pelosi's from there. The liberal elites are all from there, and they don't want me to win, so they stole the vote. Okay, it was rigged. American Beauty won. Uh, let me tell you, I saw her. She's no beauty. My daughter is way, way more hotter. Don't you agree, folks? Don't you agree? Thankfully, the disaster was averted, and even Harvey Weinstein, arguably the Donald Trump of Hollywood, didn't complain. Fortunately, you don't have to hear more of my Trump impression, but unfortunately, the other name is one that we are going to be coming up to repeatedly during this series. More on that later. Now, if one scandal wasn't enough, a second scandal almost derailed the night as well. The second scandal, in fact, was fitting of a Hollywood heist movie itself. Just after the ballot fiasco, as much more pressure started to arise due to this issue, suddenly disaster struck. All 55 Oscar statuettes had been stolen from the loading dock off a freight ship, coincidentally also in Bell, California, and had vanished without a trace. Scrambling into action, the Academy declared that they would get R.S. Owens, their awards manufacturer, to create more. R.S. Owens is one of the most esteemed award producers in the world, having either designed and or produced themselves iconic awards such as the Oscars, the Emmys, the Indy Grand Prix, the Cotton and Sugar Bowl, the American Idol Trophy, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame statues as well, among many other awards. Unfortunately, it was doubtful to be ready in time for the ceremony and had producers panicking on ways to improvise. It would have been interesting to see what the Academy would have done if things didn't turn out. Would they decide to give out temporary knockoffs for the time being? Would they forego the statuettes altogether? Or would they, and this is a bold choice, daringly lean into the joke? For example, my initial thought was that they could give a gold ribbon to the winner and all the other nominees purple participation badges. And here you see why I am never trusted to plan anything. See, none of this in the end mattered because much like the third act of a Hollywood action film, a hero emerged at the last moment to save the day. 60-year-old Willie Fulgear, a collector and refurbisher of junk, Struck gold, well, in this case, bronze with gold plating, when he found 52 of the statues in a dumpster behind a fast food restaurant. You see, it had turned out that the initial thieves panicked and dumped off their loot in hopes to come back for it later, but had missed their chance. Willie knew he had found something valuable, but not in the way that you might think. Willie could tell instantly that they were expensive, but he did not actually know what they were. It might seem ridiculous, but he did not recognize the famous Oscar statuette. He was about to sell them as brass by the pound, enough to make a few hundred dollars at least, when thankfully his son recognized not just his Oscars, but the $50,000 reward that was posted for their recovery. Willie Fulgear, who was a few weeks away from being forced to live in his car, had made the discovery of a lifetime. After being handed his check, the Academy knew a good story when they heard it, and had Willie arrive at Oscar night in a limo, dressed up in a tux with a top hat, the top hat being his idea, to sit near the front where Billy Crystal himself gave him a shout-out in the awards introduction. could not have a show without the man himself who found the missing Oscars, Willie Fulgear, sitting right over there. Willie got $50,000 for finding the 52 Oscars. It's not a lot of money when you realize that Miramax and DreamWorks are spending millions of dollars just to get one. (laughs) So welcome, Willie. Embraced by Hollywood stars, Willie was greeted by soon-to-be governator Arnold Schwarzenegger and was hugged by the soon-to-be not Mrs. Schwarzenegger, Maria Shriver. In front of the cameras, Arnold put his arm around Willie and said, Willie, you're a born star. Which is when Willie learned one of the most well-kept secrets in Hollywood, that Arnold Schwarzenegger has faked his Austrian accent his whole career. Multiple movie producers promised him that they would find a script to make a movie out of his story, while others offered him bit parts in movies. A happy ending for Willie, but you might be wondering about the other three statues. Remember, only 52 of the 55 were actually found. While it seemed like the trail had gone long, cold, three years later in Miami... During a massive cocaine drug bust, authorities found one of the additional missing statues. That's right. Three years after the awards went missing on the coast of California, one turned up at a raided house on the other side of America. How this isn't a movie yet, I have no idea. And it should be noted, at the time of this recording, the other two statues remain at large. So it was by a mini-miracle that the 72nd Academy Awards went off like they did without a hitch. So now that we know how the ceremony got started and some of the context behind it, how did it end? Well, here at Reelin in the Years, what we like to do first is we need to get a little bit more context. So before we start going into who should have won what and what award should have went to who, let's dig a little bit deeper and look at some of the heavy hitters of 1999. I know Kung Fu. Show me. I think it's quite fitting to start off with some popular movies that actually made a dent at the Oscars. So, first, we are going to be looking at the second most acclaimed film of that night. The Academy absolutely knocked it out of the park when they gave The Matrix almost every single visual and special effects award. An incredible technical achievement, the Wachowskis, the co-directors and writers of the film, blended their love of cyberpunk, Japanese animation, and Hong Kong action cinema together in a gloriously green mashup of action, technology, and Intro to Philosophy 101. Before slow-motion bullet time was a cliché, it enraptured audiences when it first premiered, making it a full-on cultural phenomenon, and it was also one of the highest-grossing films of the year. There is no overstating its importance to the action movie genre, nor has the 20-plus years aged it poorly. It fully deserves its technical awards, beating out other action standouts like Star Wars Episode I and The Mummy. The Matrix also serves, in retrospect, as a subversive story on sexuality and gender fluidity, and is an early trans allegory. Both Wachowskis are trans women, and meant for The Matrix to be about opening your eyes, and to be mindful of your realities beyond heteronormativity. Also, the Wachowskis deserve credit for one of the most audacious movie openings in film history, and a choice that could have easily cost them their whole careers. If you've watched the film, you know the opening scene pretty well carrie Ann Moss, who plays Trinity, fights her way out of buildings surrounded by cops and eventually agents. She leaps across buildings like gravity is just a mere suggestion before finding a ringing payphone, disappearing before being struck by a truck, an unforgettable heart-pounding opening. Having initially been giving a $10 million budget for the whole film, the Wachowskis, knowing it would be nowhere near enough to realize their vision, basically said screw it and spent all of that money on the first scene alone, hoping that would be enough to impress the producers to give them more money. Thankfully, this is exactly what happened, and the rest is film history. What do you want me to do? You just want me to hit you. Come on. Do me just one favor. Why? Why? I don't know why. I don't know never been in a fight you no but that that's a good thing no it is not how much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight i don't want to die without any scars so come on hit me before i lose my nerve next on our list we have the film fight club directed by david fincher and starring ed norton brad pitt and helena bonham carter fight club remains one of the movie posters most likely to be found on college dorm walls to this very day brad pitt Was nearing the peak of his stardom and boldly embodies the Gen Xer ideal of masculinity, a betrayal that has as much toxicity in it as the soap they produce in their spare time. While its political message and commentary on consumerism can sometimes be muddled and inconsistent throughout, the film's energy and mind bending plot carries it through and will undoubtedly remain a popular film for years to come. First, he's he's sitting there with him. First, uh-huh. Wait, wait, back. wait, wait, he's there, he's there at, at their house? They're at the house. exact like, address he gave Frank. Like, I know this is really hard for you right now. No. I know You're to give me things, Janet, give me things. Give me the information. I want the information. Next up, we have Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, a film focused on multiple characters intertwining with each other in the San Fernando Valley. All characters are unique, have their own stories and personal failings, but all are in search of happiness, forgiveness, and meaning. While Magnolia could have easily fallen into the overbloated, melodrama territory that borders on pretentious, or have been bogged down by the excessive storylines, Anderson is able to expertly craft a story that is equal parts soap opera and spiritual awakening. Boosted by incredible performances by Julianne Moore, Tom Cruise, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and the final role from the great Jason Robards, Magnolia lives on as one of the greatest living American directors, finest works. Next up we have Stanley Kubrick's much maligned final work which stars the then-married power couple Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. A victim of its own fame, Eyes Wide Shut remains controversial to this very day, and is best remembered for its gratuitous orgy scenes, where the elites of society enjoy the most outrageous parties, while hidden behind ornate masks. You will still see references to these scenes in many movies to this day, a telling sign that while many claim to have found the movie too odd to enjoy, its ideas, and its legacy, still lives on. A record-breaking and grueling 400-day shoot, incredibly, Cruz and Kidman held together through Kubrick's eccentric filming style, which included 50-plus takes of multiple scenes. A toiler of meticulous detail, Kubrick redesigned whole sections of New York City and England as he was too afraid to make the transatlantic flight to do the filming, but what resulted was an eerie, dreamlike effect that always feels seconds away from turning into a full-blown nightmare. An incredibly layered movie that is simultaneously one of the most paranoid conspiracy theories depicted on screen, while also being one of the most believable. It is impossible not to think about the horrific stories that we've heard in recent years about the parties that Jeffrey Epstein and other people in power would throw for themselves, getting away with some horrendous, horrendous things for years, being able to hide behind their wealth, their power, and their image. The fact that Stanley Kubrick died almost immediately and suddenly after completing filming of Eyes Wide Shut may just be the start of one of the most underdeveloped conspiracy theories at all. Eyes Wide Shut is a powerful film about the corroding effect of power, money, and prestige can have not just on a single person, but on a marriage as well. Hello, Peter. What's happening? Uh, We have sort of a problem here. Yeah, you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS reports. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry about that. I I forgot. Mm, Yeah. You see, we're putting the cover sheets on all TPS reports now before they go out. Did you see the memo about this? Written and directed by King of the Hill creator Mike Judge, Office Space will live on for years as one of the most memed-about films and quotable films in recent memory. A hilarious satire on the mind-numbing, tedious work at white-collar jobs and how corporate America enslaves its workers to giving up a large chunk of their life in order to produce what seemingly feels like nothing, Office Space is a story that is a lot more cynical and subversive than it might at first seem. By showing how corporate America causes disconnect and dehumanization in the overbearing business landscape, Office Space has played a huge role in pop culture over the past 20 years, especially in regards to one of the most beloved sitcoms of the new millennium, where it shares more than just part of its name. Next time that you watch the crew at Dunder Mifflin try to brighten their day, remember that The Office owes much of its DNA to Office Space. So yeah, if you could go ahead and watch Office Space again, that'd be great. <laughs> i close my eyes for a moment, I'm still there. The bluest eyes in Texas are haunting me tonight. Another town, another hotel room While The Matrix may have hid itself as a trans allegory, Boys Don't Cry made it front and center. With a powerful performance by Hilary Swank, who portrayed real-life trans boy Brandon Tina, Boys Don't Cry was really ahead of its time in its portrayal of the trans experience. So far ahead, in fact, that the word transgender was never really used in the film or in any reviews. While it is tempting for some to see the conversations and portrayals as dated, and in some cases even regressive, but Boys Don't Cry was incredibly groundbreaking for its time, and for many North Americans, it was their first introduction to a world with trans people in it. And it also helped to make the real-life tragedy of Brandon Tina a much more widely known story. A heartbreaking tale that hopefully started more conversations for the good than it did the bad, Boys Don't Cry is one of the finest films of 1999. You're one of the most popular students at Carver. You're honest, you're straightforward, and you don't crack under pressure, as we all saw in the amazing fourth quarter against Westside. All the kids look up to you. Now what does that spell? Student. Council, president. Oh, me? Oh, no, I, I don't know anything about that stuff, Mr. M. And I mean, besides, that's Tracy Flick's thing. She's always working so hard at yeah, it. Yeah, no, she's a real go-getter, all right. And she's super nice. Yeah, yeah. But one person assured of victory kind of uh, undermines the whole idea of democracy, don't you think? I can't help but think that Matthew Broderick plays a grown-up version of Ferris Bueller in Alexander Payne's election, who clearly peaked in high school, so he decides to return as the cool teacher to keep those good times rolling. Broderick basically runs the school until keener Tracy Flick, the best work of Reese Witherspoon's career, looks to run for student president and overhaul his comfy life. A great allegory for the corruption in politics, set to the hilarious low stakes of a high school election, it underscores the hilarity of when some people take things way too seriously, while others couldn't care less. I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. I am so, so sorry. The two most important horror films since *Science of the Lambs both came out in 1999 and helped to reshape the horror landscape for the start of the 21st century. The Blair Witch Project still holds the record for the budget to revenue return in film history, costing only $60,000 to make while earning over $250 million. A simple premise that is admittedly done to both good and bad effect, The Blair Witch Project made genius use of one of the earliest internet ad campaigns and had many people believing in the lost-footage-style shoot that would be copied for the next two decades. While not the finest horror movie of the last 20 years, The Blair Witch Project may just be the most important. I want to tell you my secret now. After The Blair Witch Project, The Sixth Sense is the most successful horror movie in recent years. Coming number two in the box office after Star Wars The Phantom Menace, The Sixth Sense gave us one of the greatest twist endings in cinematic history and launched the career of hit-or-miss filmmaking legend M. Night Shyamalan. Only the second director of color ever to be nominated for Best Director, Shyamalan would struggle to find success after The Sixth Sense, but with an incredible cast consisting of the great Tony Collette, One of the finest childhood acting performances by Haley Joel Osment and a great bit part by Bruce Willis's hairpiece. The Sixth Sense became one of the most popular and critically revered films of the late 90s. Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. With one of the most unique and creative American scripts in a long time, director Spike Jones and writer Charlie Kaufman burst onto the screen with an A-list cast inside of a bizarrely indie-type film. John Cusack plays a puppeteer who finds a portal into the mind of real-life actor John Malkovich, playing a satirical version of himself. Roger Ebert, ranked it as the number one movie of the year, and while The Sixth Sense may have had the most shocking twist of the year, few films have had more of a bizarre journey than being John Malkovich. You're to finesse me, lawyer me some Mike. more? Try Mr. Wallace. If we aired this segment... I was told... Don't talk! Mind my own business. We could be a grave risk. We're doing this with or without you, Lord. Are you a businessman or are you a newsman? He's only the key witness in the biggest public health reform issue in US history. Does he go on television and tell the truth? Yes. Is it newsworthy? Yes. If the films of 1999 had a theme, it was the fear of corporate America. While some feared its crippling boredom or its lack of ingenuity and freedom of expression, the insider gave us one of the most physical of these fears, with a political thriller that put whistleblowers at the forefront. Buoyed by an all-star cast including Al Pacino, Russell Crowe, and the late Christopher Plummer, Michael Mann's simmering drama follows the true story of how the tobacco industry tried to cover up years of knowing about the dangers to its users and the lengths they were willing to go to hide the truth. Despite being a box office disappointment, The Insider remains one of the finest political thrillers and tales of corruption and the importance of journalism committed to screen. While 1999 may have been the year of the horror films, if you really sit down and think about it, past The Blair Witch Project and past The Sixth Sense, The Insider might have been the scariest movie of them all. I hope that you enjoyed those small little rundowns of some of the biggest and most impressive films of the year. I left a lot of them off the list for sake of time. Uh, Really quickly, I'd like to just point out just how great 1999 was for movies. Here is just a quick rundown of some of the Uh, biggest movies of 1999, and some of the uh, ones that you might remember from that time period. To shagadelically start this list, we have Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, the second in the Austin Powers trilogy. We have Big Daddy with Adam Sandler. We have Three Kings with George Clooney, Marky Mark, and Ice Cube we have the very fun swashbuckling tale of The Mummy with Brendan Fraser. We have not one but two Julia Roberts rom-coms with Runaway Bride and the very fun Hugh Grant film Nodding Hill. We have Oliver Stone's football movie with Al Pacino in Any Given Sunday. We have The Talented Mr. Ripley, uh, where I just actually realized this, uh, Jude Law, again, plays somebody born into privilege who gets replaced uh, by another person with lesser means. This also happened in uh, the mid-90s sci-fi movie Gattaca. Uh, We have The Cider House Rules, which is going to be a big Oscar contender this year. We have Steven Soderbergh's The Limey, which is a very fun kind of uh, crime thriller, Uh, a little bit of a precursor to to one of my favorite movies, Drive. Uh, We have Kevin Smith's Dogma. We have Man on the Moon uh, with Jim Carrey. We have the very fun and super underrated comedy Galaxy Quest, which has one of Alan Rickman's greatest performance. Uh, We also have a string of great high school films, you have Cruel Intentions, you have Varsity Blues, you have American Pie, and you probably have one of the best teen comedy films of the last 25 years, 10 Things I Hate About You. The biggest movie of the year was Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Even though it received much backlash from fans and critics alike, it still easily topped the box office lists. And we also had one of the final big hit adaptations of a Stephen King book. uh, After a uh, very long string of wins, like with Carrie, The Shining, Misery, and Stand By Me, and of course, The Shawshank Redemption, uh, The Green Mile is one of the final Stephen King books uh, to be made into a movie and top the box office. Of course, it wouldn't be for another 20 years until everybody's least favorite clown would bring Stephen King back to the box office top with the film It. Of course, we also have the eventual best picture winner, American Beauty, but we're going to save our review for that until the end. And with that in mind, it is time to cover some of the biggest major races and some of the biggest prizes of the night. But before we do that, we need to set up some ground rules. Now, obviously, I haven't watched all of these movies from this year, but I will say I've seen quite a few. I've actually seen well over 50 so far. 53, if my numbers are correct and counting. You see, I actually have a list, so I keep track of all the movies that I've seen. Everybody said it would be a waste of time. But who's laughing now? Uh, Because it really did come in handy. I will be honest about the movies that I have not seen, but I have seen most of the major award contenders uh, from this year. So we're keeping that in mind. Secondly, I also want to talk about uh, the awards that we're going to be breaking down. Obviously, we're not going to be talking about every single film and every single award. I know most of you are probably here for best sound editing, but I'm so sorry. We just do not have time for it. So for brevity's sake, I will go over a few of the key races from each year first and dive deep on a few awards and how they could have been done just a little bit differently. I would also like to make one quick comment on the discrepancy before we get to each category. It's something that we already know, uh, but was really highlighted to me when doing research for this episode. It is worth repeating that even though it is very clearly understood in the past few years, there are fewer opportunities for women, people of color, and other marginalized groups in Hollywood. Now, I'm not just saying this to be politically correct. I'm not just saying this because that's what a lot of people are saying. I'm saying it because the numbers bear this fact out. It does not just affect key positions in filmmaking like directors, writers, and representation on screen, but it also has a trickle-down effect to the quality of the rules themselves. For example, there is a major discrepancy between the amount of nominees that you could include for Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress in this year, mainly because a majority of scripts have far fewer female representation on screen than they do their male counterparts. In 2018, only 33%, that's a third, of all speaking or named characters were girls or women, and believe it or not, that was actually the best number in film history, and marked an incredible steady progression over the past few decades. All this to say, marginalized groups are vastly underrepresented, uh, not just in these awards, but in the film industry as a whole and therefore it can be very difficult to have as in-depth a discussion on certain topics than as others. So I am very sorry and I apologize if I don't have much to say about some categories versus others. It is an issue that I'm aware of and I'm trying to deal with, but it's just something that became very painfully obvious to me when researching for this episode. If you feel that there is a name that I might have missed, or if I've overlooked a certain area, please feel free to reach out to me and I will make sure to mention it and correct that in my next show. Finally, before we get into handing out some awards, we need to consider the criteria and how we judge these films. And this is where it gets the trickiest. There is no platonic ideal of best movie, just in the way that there is no actual definition of something like beauty. It is, just like beauty, in the eye of the beholder. So instead of picking just my favorite movies, which would make, admittedly, a very boring podcast for everybody but me, we will instead go by these criteria in no particular order. The first criteria that we're going to be looking at is staying power. If 1999 was already 20 years ago, uh, it means that even if a child was born on Oscar night, they are already out of high school, can legally drive, drink, and get married. Now, hopefully, they don't do that all at the same time, but simply put, it's a long time, and most movies, even good movies, will fade into distant memory. But some remain, and are still regarded well. Maybe if you had a child in 1999, or a kid who was young at that point, maybe you made a conscious effort to refer to one of those movies and even sit down to watch it with them. The longer a movie stays in our collective consciousness, the better chance it has to be re-ranked favorably into the Oscar podium. Criteria number two, subject matter. Movies are always used as a benchmark in culture. Uh, What is portrayed on the screen is often a sign of its times, and that can work for or against a movie. Some films are groundbreaking and start a conversation that can be felt years later. Some are regressive and therefore are going to age poorly. While some may bemoan that the apparent recent introduction of politics into movies uh, is kind of taken away from your enjoyment of the film, there's some news for you. This is actually far from the truth. As acclaimed German director Wim Wenders famously said, every film is political, most political of all are those that pretend not to be. If it seems like the movie is saying nothing at all, then you probably aren't looking hard enough. Movies that have created conversations, been impactful in its representation, or even changed the way we think about an issue, will get a boost from this criteria. Criteria number three, star power. Beyond the glitz and the glamour, Oscar Nights is really just the world's largest and most popular job award. If you think about it, it's really just like the Dundies, just with more expensive gowns than usually located far away from any chilies. Therefore, it is also a way to recognize and thank some of the greatest workers in the industry and award those who have made the biggest impact. It is a shame that some will never even get a nomination. In fact, I often lay awake at night staring at the ceiling wondering why, oh why, Jim Carrey has never been nominated for a single Oscar, while others will have only made one film and have walked away with more hardware than some of the biggest stars in the industry. If this feels like a major star's best work, then they deserve to be recognized for it. But it's also a double-edged sword, as those who have done terrible things, and let me tell you, there are quite a few at this year's ceremony, will not be looked at with as much sympathy. Criteria number four, critical reception and popularity. The Oscars are not the Teen Choice Awards, but they're also not the Sundance Indie Awards either. The amount of people who have watched and interacted with a film is important, and that means that blockbusters, comedies, and, you know, quote-unquote, fun movies should be considered as well. If there is one thing the Oscars have improved on in the last few years, it is looking at the box office receipts and recognizing that people are willing to tune in and cheer for a movie that they've actually heard of. Popularity should not be held against these films, and if critics and the audience like them at the time, and love them still to this day, it will help their case. Criteria number five. It is really hard to tell if a movie is good or not, but that doesn't mean that it's impossible. Some films are able to change the way we think about a certain actor, director, subject matter, or genre altogether, and can have a huge impact felt for years, even if it's not obvious to most viewers think of a film like this year's Blair Witch Project, while easily not the best movie, has an impossible to understate impact on the landscape of horror films for years to come. Movies that are able to transcend their genre or change the way that people think about a certain issue or stay in our minds for years to come will be regarded highly in these re-rankings. So that criteria again is number one, staying power. Number two, subject matter number three, star power, number four, critical reception popularity, and number five, legacy. Now, let's get to some hardware. We're going to keep the ball rolling here on Fake Oscars with our favorite recurring segment, Best Random Oscar. It is a great opportunity to highlight some of the best WTF movie moments of the year, realizing that not all movie magic can be captured in the award ceremony. And boy, we have a lot to choose from. We could choose the best blatant advertising to the starbucks cup found in every fight club scene which probably made starbucks both really happy but also a little upset we also have best behind the scenes fight which would go to three kings where star george clooney tried and might i add successfully beat up director david o russell three times it wasn't the first time and it wouldn't be the last time a star punches david o russell in the face on set we could also give yet another Oscar to American Beauty uh, for Best Plastic Bag in a Supporting Role, but our favorite random Oscar goes to Best Lead Pie for the Apple Pie's work in American Pie. Now, a few things to note. First, the long-standing rumor that the scene caused a lot of copycat-style penile burns for Impressional Youth is definitely false, as there's actually no medical records of this happening. Now, does that mean that some people were just too embarrassed to go to the hospital with their third-degree burns? Maybe not, but also, definitely yes. Second, Jason Biggs, the actor who made sweet, sweet movie magic with that apple pie, recently told the New York Times during a 20th anniversary special that it was originally supposed to be a McDonald's apple pie, which just so happens to share a certain shape with a certain body part. That is until McDonald's eventually balked at the idea, worrying that it would hurt their reputation as a family brand that just so happens to give all your beloved older relatives heart disease. Now that is a reputation you don't want to tarnish. With that plan out the window, the producers decided to go with the all-American apple pie easily, one of the sexiest pies out there. How did they film it? Well, Biggs said, and I swear to you this is a real quote, Biggs said, I wasn't aroused, obviously. So it was more like my thing was against it. It wasn't in, if you will. Also, it was a fake pie. Now, if Jason Biggs was trying to convince us that he did not want to have sex with that pie, he did not do a very good job. And also, might I add, the fact that he didn't go all method acting is honestly disgraceful. You think that three-time Academy Award winner Daniel Day-Lewis, who literally trained to be a cobbler for a movie role, wouldn't also have sex with a cobbler if he felt it would be more authentic? Come on, please. Anyway, congratulations to the pie in American Pie for this episode's best random Oscar. Mom, Home. <sighs> Oh yeah. Uh, what it looks like. Well, we'll just tell your mother that, uh, that uh, we ate it all. Okay, so I think we're late enough in this show that we should actually start handing out some of the actual awards. Now, we're going to keep it pretty straightforward today. We're going to go over the four main acting categories, the best director and the best picture category. Maybe in future episodes we'll branch out a little bit more, uh, but for time we'll just kind of crunch it down to this. So, moving on, we're going to start with the acting awards beginning with the Best Supporting Category, where we have some great performances. The nominees put forward by the Academy are solid. Starting with a newcomer, literally, we have 11-year-old Haley Joel Osment, who can see Dead People in the second highest-grossing film of the year, The Sixth Sense. It is no exaggeration to say that the movie does not work without Osment as child actors are notoriously hit and miss, and that the preteen gives one of the finest child acting performances in film history. While it may be awkward for a respected, grown adult actor to lose to a kid who's not yet in middle school, in this case, it wouldn't have been too bad. Rounding out the rest of the nominees, we have Jude Law, who was nominated for The Talented Mr. Ripley, This happened to mark the beginning of a five-year run of Oscar dominance for law where he appeared in six Oscar-nominated films. We also have beloved and sorely missed Michael Clark Duncan who was nominated for his role as the falsely imprisoned death row inmate John Coffey in The Green Mile where he delivers one of the best performances in an all-star cast which includes Sam Rockwell and America's dad Tom Hanks. Speaking of Toms, Tom Cruise had a monster in 1999, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on, and is up for his work in Magnolia, while Michael Caine, the eventual winner, takes home his second Best Supporting Actor award for his work in The Cider House Rules, where he plays the doctor and the manager of a main orphanage set during World War II. Now, very famously, Caine was actually not present to receive his first statue because he was too busy off shooting another film. Now, was he off filming a prestige drama or an award-winning comedy? No. He was off filming Jaws 4. Very famously, when asked if he regretted missing the ceremony for his decision to be in Jaws, Kane replied, I've never seen it, talking about Jaws 4, but by all accounts, it's terrible. However, I have seen the house that it built, and it's terrific. Reranking these choices are going to be very difficult, as there's no easy names to drop out of the race. But unfortunately, some cuts need to be made. I want to give a quick shout out to a dark horse choice, the cast of Office Space, which is filled of some great bit and character actors, especially from the great Stephen Root for his role as Milton, the meek and underappreciated lover of Red Staplers. This movie is insanely quotable and has a lot of great character actors giving incredible performances, but unfortunately, we did not have room for all of them on this list. Our first additional nominee has to go to John Malkovich in Being John Malkovich, where he plays a satirical version of himself being controlled by people who enter his mind. John Malkovich gives it his all in this film, which is actually quite a risky choice. Malkovich once noted, either the movie's a bomb, and it's got not only my name above the title, but my name in the title, so I'm effed either way, or it does well. Thankfully, Malkovich had that attitude because audience and critics alike agreed it was the latter. An incredibly tricky performance that highlights Malkovich's range, he will take his spot with the rest of the nominees. Quickly before we move on to the next nominee, we have to get to one more funny Malkovich quote. He was reportedly really confused as to why the script was written about him. Why can't it be being Tom Cruise? which was a question both Malkovich and his agent kept asking director Spike Jones. Now, this opens up the possibility for Tom Cruise to be in three award-nominated films from this year, and honestly, that's too much for me to handle, so I'm happy that Malkovich stuck it out. Our second nominee has to go to one of the most iconic performances in the last quarter century, and ranked by Empire Magazine in 2008 as the greatest character ever portrayed on film. It's Brad Pitt as Tyler Durden in Fight Club. Pitt, having recently worked with director David Fincher on Seven, and now entering the peak of his A-list celebrity fame, shunned his pretty boy image for the beaten, bruised, and tattered look of the anti-consumerist cult leader and amateur soapmaker of the underground fight club ring. Pitt looks the part here. He had his own teeth chipped away by a dentist, he practiced many forms of combat, and he actually dehydrated himself to get dem abs. And while recent reappraisals of Fight Club may not be as kind as it once was, it is undoubtable that there are few characters more memorable, quotable, or recognized than Tyler Durden. Yet while it was an incredible year for supporting actors, for my money, it was one Thomas Mofoder Cruz IV, better known to the world as Tom Cruise, who gives the finest supporting performance of the year for his role as the sleazy hookup artist and self-proclaimed self-help guru Frank T.J. Mackey in Paul Thomas Anderson's epic Magnolia. Cruz's character perfectly encapsulates the 90s-era pickup artist whose aggressively macho A-type personality is dripping in misogyny in his cutthroat business and pseudoscientific approach to winning over women. When performing, Cruz is a soulless shark whose hollow eyes hungrily scour the room without a single shred of empathy, performing to a sold-out hotel conference suite full of lonely, angry men where he parasitically feeds and profits off their stunted view of relationships and women. But as the facade slowly fades away, Cruz portrays an incredible sadness and regret, and it becomes clear that the only way he is even able to function is to put up the act in the first place. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I'm reminded of his infamous Oprah interview years later. During his couch jumping and his antics on Oprah, he almost looks to be doing a lesser parody of his Mackie character from Magnolia, and oddly, it may be the closest that Cruise, an incredibly guarded individual, has ever come to bearing his true self, warts and all, to the world. In a very weird way, it feels that he is more authentic portraying Mackie and Magnolia than he is playing Tom Cruise in the real world. As one of our last capital M movie, capital S, stars, the fact Cruz has no Oscars to his name is proof we have taken his actual talents for granted for far too long. Here at Reelin in the years, we would fix that by giving him the 1999 Best Supporting Actor award, one that is long overdue. That nominee list again is Haley Joel Osment for The Sixth Sense, John Malkovich in Being John Malkovich, Michael Caine in The Cider House Rules, Brad Pitt in Fight Club, and our new winner, Tom Cruise in Magnolia. Moving on to the best supporting actress, we have an equally tight race. While Angelina Jolie will walk away as the winner on this night for her work in Girl Interrupted, she would also walk away with the title for the most headline-worthy acceptance speech when she declared her love for a brother in a way that I am not, and the audience was not ready to know how to exactly react to. God, I'm surprised nobody's ever fainted up here. Oh, I'm, I'm in shock, and I'm so in love with my brother right now. <laughs> he just held me and said he loved me, and I know he's so happy for me. And um... for her role in *Girl Interrupted*. Jolie cemented her meteoric rise to A-list Hollywood status, a claim she still holds to this day, despite being in a shockingly few amount of movies over the last decade. Rounding out the rest of the nominees, we have Tony Collette in The Sixth Sense, Catherine Keener in Being John Malkovich, Chloe Sevigny in Boys Don't Cry, and Samantha Morton in and Lowdown. While this list is almost exactly perfect, there will have to be a little bit of rejiggling. Full disclosure, I have actually not seen Sweden Lowdown yet, nor do I actually have much yearning to do so. It kind of received mixed critical acclaim upon release. And while, like Samantha Morton, especially as Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth the Golden Age, her role of the mute love interest in Woody Allen's 1930s jazz rom-com is going to be left off the list. Next, we're going to move on to the actual nominees, starting with Catherine Keener uh, for her role in Being John Malkovich. In this film, Keener is excellent at mind control and manipulation, and is the one who is really pulling the strings for puppeteer John Cusack. This trait will be reprised by Keener 20 years later as the hypnotizing matriarch in the horror film Get Out. We also have Toni Collette, one of the most underappreciated actresses working today, who tries to hold together as a single working mother of a boy with a paranormal gift in The Sixth Sense. The additional nominee must go to Helena Bonham Carter for her role as the chain-smoking grifter Marla Singer in Fight Club, the only person in the movie more crazy than Ed Norton himself. While it is easy to accuse Fight Club of underdeveloping her role, Carter makes up for this with her charisma, aloofness, and full-on commitment to the role. Other potential nominees could have gone to Julianne Moore and Melinda Dillon, who had great performances in Magnolia, but like most films with huge ensemble casts, it's really difficult to pick one over the other. The main switch in this category will happen for Angelina Jolie and fellow nominee Chloe Sevigny in Boys Don't Cry. Sevigny had long been an indie darling for her alternative fashion and modeling choices, her appearance in Sonic Youth music videos, and her breakout role in the incredibly controversial 1995 film Kids. Never one to turn away from taking risks, her humanity and persona shines through in this incredibly progressive Romeo and Juliet tale of Boys Don't Cry. It is easy to see how this role could have been glammed up or kind of trend towards melodrama, but director Kimberly Pierce and Sevigny keep it very real, while not sacrificing the more magical movie moments. The chemistry between Sevigny and co-star Hilary Swank is incredibly believable, and Sevigny finds a way to turn her portrayal of real-life victim Lana Tisdall into a fully-fledged persona in her own right. This film takes great lengths to show these two making a connection and eventually falling in love, and for it to be believable, both actors need to nail their parts, and thankfully they did. Here at Reeling in the Years, Chloe Sevigny, wins Best Supporting Actress over Superstar Angelina Jolie in one of the upsets at Oscar night. Those nominees again are Helena Bonham Carter in Fight Club, Toni Collette in The Sixth Sense, Catherine Keener in Being John Malkovich, Angelina Jolie in Girl Interrupted, and your winner of Reeling in the Year's Best Supporting Actress, Chloe Sevigny in Boys Don't Cry. Moving on to the Best Actress category, it is time for my favorite and hopefully longest running side feature. What was Meryl Streep doing? We all know and love Meryl Streep, the most decorated actor in film history. In What Was Meryl Streep Doing, we play a very simple game and ask a very simple question. On Oscar night, what was Meryl doing? At the 72nd Academy Awards, Meryl was probably sitting board stiff in her seat knowing that she was not going to win for her role in Wes Craven's, yes, that Wes Craven's, musical drama, Music of the Heart. Wes Craven, most notably known for his horror films like Scream, Nightmare on Elm Street, and The Hills Have Eyes, gave his one non-horror film shot to the inner-city school tale of how music can bring us all together. Like always, Streep has a knack for replicating some of the most difficult accents and making even the simplest of roles come to life. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough to overcome the competition. Julianne Moore is also nominated for End of the Affair, while Janet McTeer is also nominated for Tumbleweeds, two films that have arguably not really stayed in the popular consciousness for too long. Either way, the whole year, and the whole reason that Meryl Streep was probably thinking about skipping this Oscar night, was because it was really a two-woman race, a fact that was made clear in review columns and predictions as well. It was Annette Bening in American Beauty versus Hilary Swank in Boys Don't Cry. And either one of them was going to win or we were going to get one of the most surprising upsets in Oscars history. Benning is often most compared to Glenn Close in their story of Oscar failures. Both of them are very consistent and highly regarded as some of the most exceptional performers of the past few decades, yet continually fall short of award recognition, usually finishing second or third in their categories. Benning's best chance came in 1999 with American Beauty, where she plays a realtor, a wife, and a mother stuck in suburban purgatory. But it is Hilary Swank who would win her first Academy Award for her incredible portrayal of trans man Brandon Tina in Boys Don't Cry, a film that was so ahead of its time that critics, and even cringy Oscar announcers, couldn't stop referring to Swank's character as a lesbian who dressed up as a boy. Director Kimberly Pierce helmed one of the first mainstream trans stories to find award success in what Roger Ebert called Romeo and Juliet, if set in a Nebraska trailer park. Its success was a miraculous feat, considering the small budget in which Swank was paid. Earning only $3,000 for her months-long role in Boys Don't Cry, Swank would later joke that she had an Oscar, but couldn't qualify for health insurance. Based on a tragic true story, Swank's sweet, simple, and naive portrayal of Brandon Tina is reminiscent of John Voight's Joe Buck in Midnight Cowboy, Down to the Cowboy Hat. Swank plays Brandon very lovingly yet does not push the role into a melodrama. Swank is another correct choice from that night and would once again win Best Actress. In our re-rankings, both Swank and Benning will obviously stay, as can Meryl Streep, mostly because I feel that it is against the United Nations to not nominate her when she comes out with a good movie. For our last two spots, we're going to go a little off the board with some other memorable favorites. Up first, we have Julia Stiles' performance in 10 Things I Hate About You, which helped to revive a struggling and oversaturated teen comedy landscape with an updated adaptation of Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew. Stiles imbues her role with confidence and self-awareness, which is way ahead of its time, and actually became a young feminist movie icon to a whole new generation. Stiles's nomination also gives some credibility to an often overlooked and disregarded genre, the rom-com. It is of no coincidence that rom-coms are one of the few areas historically that women have been given fully fleshed out lead roles, so it should come to no surprise that they are often overlooked on Oscar night. Styles is an excellent example of what these films can get right and is an excellent addition to this list. And while Hilary Swank and Annette Benning, rightly would still top this list, we have to give a very special shout out to Reese Witherspoon, who gives her most memorable and possibly finest performance of her career in Alexander Payne's election as the plucky Tracy Flick. Reese plays Tracy Flick as the classic teacher's pet and do-gooder and until you realize that she's actually wound so tightly that any error she makes or anything that doesn't go her way could legitimately lead to her snapping. While most directors and stars would have gone with a shallower and unlikable portrayal, and painted Flick as the villain, Payne and Witherspoon team up to give a very full character study and look into how deep-seated anxieties and feelings of inadequacy can drive people to the unattainable goal of perfection. Once again, that Best Actress category is Reese Witherspoon in Election, Meryl Streep in Music of the Heart, Annette Bening in American Beauty, Julia Stiles in 10 Things I Hate About You, and the winner, once again, in Reeling in the Years Award for Best Actress goes to Hilary Swank, in Boys Don't Cry. Just like every year, the 72nd Academy Awards also marked the loss and commemorated some of the memories of some of the greatest talents in film history. As the century came to a close, it also marked the end of the first century dominated by film. From Nickelodeons and penny shows at the start of the century to the mega theater at the end of it. People working in all parts of the film industry were memorialized by actor Ed Norton, who read off some of the following names. Robert Brisson, acclaimed French director of works such as Diary of This Country Priest, was one of the most respected and influential directors in both French and European cinema. You also have Mario Puzo, novelist and screenwriter of The Godfather Saga. You have Desmond Lewin, the Welsh actor who was best known for his long running role as Q in the first 17 Bond films, who once quipped that he wouldn't stop doing that role so long as the producers want me and the Almighty doesn't. You had Jim Varney passing away at the age of 50, best known for his comedic role as Ernest and having just finished his role as Slinky Dog in Toy Story 2. You also have Hedy Lamar, who is brilliant both on and off screen, who is not just a major star, in the golden age of Hollywood, but was also one of the co-creators and inventors for the basis of modern wireless technology signal-hopping, still the backbone of Bluetooth and Wi-Fi technologies today. Her contributions helped to swing World War II and helped Lamar escape Nazi-occupied Austria and France. Sadly, we also have Madeleine Kahn, one of the most talented comedic actresses of the last half of the 20th century, who is probably best remembered for her work with Mel Brooks but I will always remember her for her turn in the greatest game-to-movie adaptation ever made, Clue. The final name read that night was a true titan in cinema, with roles from General Patton in the dramatic war film Patton to General Buck Turgidson in the hilarious satire Doctor Strangelove. His ability to play similar roles in completely different genres and to play them well highlighted the amazing presence and talent of the great George C. Scott, who died at the age of 71. You want to see the most beautiful thing I've ever filmed? was one of those days where it's a minute away from snowing and there's this electricity in the air. You can almost hear it, right? This bag was just dancing with me. Well, we've avoided the elephant in the room for long enough. Award choices can age poorly in a multitude of ways, but the most troubling ones are when they come for personal reasons. Kevin Spacey ran away with the Best Actor award in 1999, and it wasn't even close. In American Beauty, Spacey plays middle-aged man Lester Burnham, whose life is falling apart after he starts an affair with his teenage daughter's friend. Okay, well, I don't know where he found inspiration for that one. He must have had to dig really deep into his repertoire. It is no surprise that Spacey won, but it is also not the best feeling to look back on it now, knowing what we know. An undeniably incredible actor. Spacey's long run of hits included two Oscars in a four-year stretch, but with an opportunity to look back and pass new judgment, do we have a chance to make things right? Luckily, This was a stacked year in this category, but before we get to the re-rankings, here again are the original nominees. We have winner Kevin Spacey for American Beauty, we have Richard Farnsworth in A Straight Story, Russell Crowe in The Insider, Sean Penn in Sweet and Lowdown, and Denzel Washington in The Hurricane. Joining Kevin Spacey on the outside looking in is Sean Penn for his work in Woody Allen's Sweet and Lowdown as it received middle-of-the-road reviews when it was first released and is barely mentioned again in Woody Allen's canon. Sean Penn is somewhat of an Oscar darling, and I feel that he's a little bit overrepresented at some of these awards, so don't feel too bad for keeping him out this year. Our other nominees include Richard Farnsworth in David Lynch's A Straight Story, where Farnsworth drives his tractor across America in a road trip in a film produced by Disney. A David Lynch Disney film about a road trip is probably the weirdest sentence I've said all day, but you know what? Richard Farnsworth does an incredible job. Uh, The sweet and elderly Farnsworth, who is a staple of Westerns, uh, is a bit character and a long-running stuntman, keeps his nomination as a way to cap off his hard-working career. Denzel Washington does what Denzel Washington always does and absolutely steals every scene he is in in this autobiography of the falsely accused boxer Reuben Hurricane Carter. While The Hurricane is by no means the best boxing movie ever made, it is bolstered by good direction from acclaimed director Norman Jewison, but it is entirely dependent on Washington's charisma to pull it off. So Washington definitely gets to keep his nomination. That leaves us with Russell Crowe, who had just begun an Oscars feat that hasn't been topped since by receiving three consecutive Best Actor nominations in three consecutive years, where he gives off a guarded performance as the whistleblower who ends up bringing down big tobacco in Michael Mann's The Insider, one of the most electrifying political thrillers in recent memory. To round out the extra spaces, we have a lot of options. We could go the iconic route and give it to Ed Norton in Fight Club, where he plays the permanently exhausted narrator, and while he is usually overshadowed in most of his scenes by Brad Pitt, he helps to stabilize the movie with his presence. We could double down and go into Cruise Control, and give another nomination to Tom Cruise in Eyes Wide Shut, if for nothing else, just having to deal with Stanley Cooper for two plus years. We could even give it to John Cusack in Being John Malkovich, But for the final two spots in our nomination wheel, we are going to first go with the underrated performance by Matthew Broderick in Election for his portrayal of a teacher who thinks that he can lecture on the importance of ethics while constantly ignoring his own. I think that Broderick plays a great inverse of his Ferris Bueller smarminess, which works like really well in the film. And there is something about his earnestness that is equal parts pathetic and also kind of endearing. I think that Alexander Payne writes and directs really well, and he's very good at making even the most unlikable characters have some bouts of sympathy as well, and Matthew Broderick is the perfect actor to kind of bring that out, so for his work in Election, he gets a well-earned nomination. Our final nomination would go to this year's winner of the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Comedic Role, Jim Carrey. For Man on the Moon, where he portrays the enigmatic and influential comedian, Andy Kaufman. Somehow left off the Oscar ballot, Jim Carrey was coming to the end of a decade where he completely dominated the box office. Starting with his legendary 1994 run, where we were introduced to Carrey with The Mask, Ace Ventura, and Dumb and Dumber, all in a 12 month span, Carrey did one of the hardest things for any actors to do over a long period of time. He made people laugh every film that he was in, no matter the reviews, there was never any question that Carey had given 110%. Do you think that Liar Liar works with any other actor? He's literally a lawyer who can't lie, and that is the premise of a very thin SNL sketch at best, but Carey pulls it out over a 90-minute runtime. By the end of the decade, Carey had started to move on to darker, more dramatic films, which allowed him to restrain his unique brand of physical comedy into a goofier, more nuanced roles, which actually suited him very well. The year before, he had won another Golden Globe for his work in The Truman Show, yet again failed to receive an Oscar nomination as well. Man on the Moon marked the end of Carey's box office dominance, as it was his first movie in a leading role that failed to recoup its budget. But that doesn't take away from Carey's performance. While biopics are usually overrated when it comes to acting, Carey holds the whole film up from beginning to end. His portrayal of Kaufman both verbally and physically is eerily similar, and it goes far beyond simple mimicry. Carey fully embodies Kaufman's presence of mayhem and out-of-the-box thinking, uh, as he would often improvise and add new lines on set, much like Kaufman would do in all of his work. Man on the Moon was reintroduced to audiences a few years ago with the Netflix documentary Jim and Andy, which chronicled the difficulties that Carey had on set with his own mental health and difficulties separating himself from the role of Kaufman. It also showed how his method acting style could cause tension on set, as Carey would refuse to break character even between takes. Yet while Carey definitely goes overboard with his destructive method acting style, And it's definitely a thing that needs to stop being glorified by critics and fans alike. There is no denying that Jim Carrey put literally everything he had into this performance. Simply put, Man on the Moon does not work if Ed Norton, John Cusack, or Hank Azaria were cast in the lead role. I mention these names because all these actors tried out, were considered, yet failed to get the part that year. That list, ironically, included one other big name none other than Kevin Spacey. Coming full circle in this edition of Reeling in the Years, we recognize Carey's incredible accomplishments over the past decade and give him the respect and recognition from the academy that he so clearly deserves. Jim Carey is the winner of the 1999 Best Actor. The nominees for Best Actor, again, are Denzel Washington in The Hurricane, Matthew Broderick in Election, Richard Farnsworth in A Straight Story, Russell Crowe in The Insider, and the winner, Jim Carrey in Man on the Moon. Now I, I would like to, I would like to do for you the imitations. I would like to start with the, the Jimmy Carter, the President of the United States. Hello. I am Jimmy Cutter, the President of the United States. There are only two categories left. For Best Director, Sam Mendes would walk away with the award, becoming the sixth individual to win for his first full-length feature film in American Beauty. We'll dive deeper into the pros and cons of this film later, when we hand out the ultimate prize for Best Picture, but before then, let's see who else was nominated. We have Spike Jones in Being John Malkovich, Lassie Hallstrom in The Cider House Rules, Michael Mann in The Insider, and M. Night Shyamalan in The Sixth Sense. This is an incredibly strong year. Just to put out how hard it is to make this list, I'm going to give you just a quick rundown of some of the directors that won't even be considered. We have Stanley Kubrick in Eyes Wide Shut. That one hurt me to my core. We have Mike Judge in Office Space, Milos Forman, two-time Best Director winner in Man on the Moon. We have the directors of The Blair Witch Project, Daniel Mirrick and Eduardo Sanchez, for their very unique take on the horror genre. We also have David O. Russell in Three Kings and Steven Soderbergh in The Limey. All those directors, easily in any other year, we could have argued for them to have a spot in the top five, but they don't even make the top 10 in 1999. So let's start with the nominees that the Academy picked. We have Spike Jones, who was hailed as one of the most unique American directors of his generation when he burst onto the scene with Bean John Malkovich, a script so surreal that it had no business coming together to work. One of the greatest music video directors of the 90s, Jones has a Terry Gilliam-esque eye for the absurd and can make the audiences laugh simply by an odd configuration of the set pieces. Speaking of music video directors, Swedish director Lassie Hallström began his career recording videos for none other than Swedish mega group ABBA back in the 70s, and that translated into a prolific Hollywood career. A very unique choice of roles, Hallström has bounced from melodramas like the Channing Tatum film Dear John, to Oscar bait movies like Chocolat and What's Eating Gilbert Grape, to his penchant for directing movies all about dogs. My Life as a Dog, Hachi, and A Dog's Purpose. Like most directors in the Swedish tradition, Hallström has a great eye for light and beautiful nostalgic imagery, and it shows with his World War II-era depiction of New England in The Cider House Rules. Michael Mann in The Insider is one of the finest crime drama directors out there, and his style has been cribbed in most procedural... Michael Mann in The Insider is one of the finest crime director... Michael Mann in The Insider is one of the finest crime drama directors out there, and his style has been cribbed by most police procedurals seen on TV. His finest work will always be his electric 1995 blockbuster, Heat, starring Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, uh, and special mention goes to the underrated Collateral a decade later. But the insider is a different monster altogether, taking all that energy and tension, and instead of putting it into a rivalry between cops and thieves, it instead goes into the riveting investigative look into the lies of Big Tobacco and how the story was broken. Before he was a bit of a running punchline, M. Night Shyamalan was an overnight success story, having only one movie to his credit, a 1998 Rosie O'Donnell comedy vehicle called Wide Awake, possibly the most 90s sentence I've ever said, Shyamalan burst onto the scene by writing and directing the second biggest movie of 1999, a little horror movie by the name of The Sixth Sense. Starring a coerced Bruce Willis who was forced to do this movie because he literally refused to do another, The Sixth Sense defied all odds to become one of the biggest movies of the decade and eventually would land a spot in the prestigious AFI's top 100 movie lists of all time in 2007. While Shyamalan would never be able to regain his fame and acclaim that he received in 1999, for a moment, one of the first ever Indian directors to break out in Hollywood was on top of the world. There are so many worthy contenders on this list, but there are also a few more names that need to be recognized. Here are just a few: Kimberly Pierce in *Boys Don't Cry*, one of the most overlooked directing performances of the year. Pierce submits one of the first mainstream queer stories to take Oscar night by storm. While there had been many other LGBTQ plus Oscar-themed films of the past, too many handled the subject matter poorly, relying on the shock value and the exploitation of the themes to tell the story. Pierce flips the script here, and what previous movies would have held onto as a twist, Pierce explains it straight away. Brendan Tina is a trans man, hoping to save money to transition, and falls in love with a cisgendered girl in the middle of rural Nebraska in the 1990s. Pierce does not try to explain it to the audience or justify Tina's thoughts or actions. Instead, it is one of the first examples of an anti-transphobia film to hit the screen, as instead of asking the audience to sympathize with Brandon or for Brandon to apologize for his actions, it instead turns the burden straight onto the audience and ask them to accept Brandon for who he is. When watching Boys Don't Cry today, it is easy to criticize the dated 90s feel to the film, and also that Swank was cast to play a trans boy. But there is no denying how progressive and influential this film was, and it is in large part in thanks to the vision of Pierce. The Wachowskis, The Matrix While Boys Don't Cry was challenging gender constructs head-on, the Wachowskis decided to do it in a subtler way. Blending their love of Chinese Hong Kong action-style cinema with philosophy, and as it turns out, a well-reasoned fear of machines taking over our lives, The Matrix pulled off a philosophical blockbuster action film that has changed the way we think about the genre altogether. With iconic imagery like Bullet Time, leather outfits, and a green hue symbolizing the computerization of the fake world, the Wachowskis threw all their cards on the table, and incredibly, they all seemed to stick. David Fincher in Fight Club. Of all the general Xer filmmakers who transitioned from music videos and commercials to directing Hollywood films, David Fincher is undoubtedly the most successful. After becoming a quasi-celebrity with his incredibly controversial anti-smoking PSA for the American Cancer Society, in which he shows a fetus smoking a cigarette in utero, a clip that NBC flat out refused to air, Fincher took the same audacious approach to most of his early work. After pulling off one of the great neo-noirs with Seven four years prior, Fincher made his most Finchery film of his career with Fight Club, breaking almost every rule of movies, including the fourth wall, narrative explanation, and even having the film strip visible to the camera. Fincher's style is as much anarchy as the film themes itself. Another film that has no right to work as well as it did, Fincher's Fight Club now seems impossible to imagine any other way. Paul Thomas Anderson and Magnolia. Paul Thomas Anderson, or PTA as he's usually referred to, was another 90s director from the Tarantino Path of Cool. A film school dropout who claimed to have learned everything he knew by watching everything he could, PTA broke out in the mid 90s with an award winning short film called Coffees and Cigarettes, which was turned into his first feature film, Hard Eight, when he was only 25 years old. Hailed as a wonder kid by many critics, he turned around and made Boogie Nights before his third feature, Magnolia. While some deemed it overlong and melodramatic, PTA was able to get some of the best performances out of some of the greatest performers in cinematic history and balance dozens of storylines into a comprehensible and moving film. PTA was able to have Magnolia feature frogs raining down from the sky and honestly, it worked. Make no mistake, Magnolia is better than just a great script. It takes an incredible hand to make this film work. Alexander Payne, An Election One of the finest writer-director combos in Hollywood, Payne crafted a layered tragic dramedy in which its multiple themes only become more powerful over time. It works really well as a satirical look into the reality of democracy and how elections themselves can just be larger popularity contests. It challenges the notions of ethics and morality, and how many are willing to police others on their tenets, but not on their own. It works very well as a send-up of a high school drama, and how simple things can sometimes get blown out of proportion, especially in small towns. It is a great story about the banality of life, and how it can cause ordinary people to chase things they know are morally wrong, if only to seek the thrill of something new. Either way you choose to look at election, it rewards you more and more every time that you watch it. There are so many great Best Directors, and this makes for easily the toughest choice of the whole episode, but here are the new Reelin' in the Years re-rankings for Best Director. The new nominees are Kimberly Pierce in Boys Don't Cry, Spike Jones in Being John Malkovich, David Fincher in Fight Club, The Wachowskis in The Matrix, and Michael Mann in The Insider. And the winner of the 1999 Reelin' in the Years Best Director goes to... The Wachowskis for The Matrix. And that brings us to our final ranking of the night, Best Picture. Before we announce our new nominees and winners, let's break down the film that won and the year as a whole. If 1999 had a theme, it was the feeling of being trapped and yearning to break free. Maybe it was our subconscious hive minds thinking towards the future of the new millennium only to feel trapped in by the mundanity of our everyday lives. Maybe it was the feeling of being on the forefront of a technological revolution, yet not knowing exactly what that revolution would be, how it would change our lives, and even if it would make it better at all. Or maybe it was simply the soul-crushing reality of our working lives becoming more and more dependent on machines to automate our work, making our efforts feel all the more useless, time-consuming, and without any benefit. If you are interested, there is an excellent YouTube essay on this phenomenon by Critic Now You See It. A link will be provided on the MM Movies website later on. And this, in the end, is what ends up hurting American Beauty. American Beauty feels the most like a 1999 film, and being the most on the nose with this sentiment, it suffers from lacking the creativity of a being John Malkovich or the bombacity of a fight club. Like most films set during a particular zeitgeist, it ages the most poorly out of it. At the time, American Beauty felt like the no-brainer, most right choice. Yet two decades later, it feels like a distant relic of the past who is this movie really speaking to? If it's the bored, middle-aged North American, that group has been hollowed out over the years through rising wealth inequality and wealth gap. If it's for the children stuck in a suburban purgatory, isolated from everyone, the oncoming internet revolution will change the way people interact with each other forever. If we wanted to put a film away in a time capsule to best describe the sentiment of 1999, few films would work better than American Beauty yet it is also that very essence that ages American Beauty the most. And for that reason, we unfortunately have to bid farewell to American Beauty as Best Picture winner of 1999 and give it to a film more deserving. If the Oscars of 1999 followed the rules that they do today, they would have allowed for an expanded Best Picture category of 10 nominees. Now, back in 1999, they capped it at 5, but we're going to cheat a little bit because this year was so good. Our new list would include these nominees in alphabetical order. We have American Beauty, Bean John Malkovich, The Blair Witch Project, Boys Don't Cry, Election, Fight Club, The Insider, Magnolia, The Matrix, and The Sixth Sense. And the award goes to the film that has had the most direct impact on cinema today, which was lauded by both critics and audiences in 1999, as well as 20 years later. It is the film that has the most surprising depths in its subject matter, and will go on to undoubtedly have the longest legacy of any film on this list. Our winner of the Reeling in the Years Best Picture of 1999 goes to... (laughs) The Matrix. Well, there you have it, folks. One of the most unique years in film history, 1999 also seemed to mark the end of an era in many ways. Before we say goodbye to this episode, we want to take one last look back at 1999 and see how things have changed. The Oscars would perform fairly well in ratings over the next few years and would steadily rise until midway through the first decade of the new millennium. Aided by one of the largest franchises ever to hit the silver screen, the Oscars would ride this momentum into the birth of the internet age, which would change awards night forever. It is easy to see that while this change may have been hard to predict accurately for the people of 1999, perhaps the prevalent film themes of claustrophobia, restlessness, and stagnation, often shown while characters huddled in their imprisoning cubicles, void of any natural light, and drowned in flickering fluorescence, Indicated a sense that they knew they were riding the top of the waves, fearing the crash down slightly less than the complacency that came with being at the top. If these films have taught us anything, it is that when everything seems too good to be true, one need only to look a little bit harder to find the rot setting in behind the veneer. Do you remember the inspirational story of Willie Fulgear, the hero who found the Oscars to save the ceremony? We never really finished Willie's story. He was never cast in any of those movies that producers had promised him, nor was his story ever adapted like so many people repeated on Oscar night. In fact, soon the tides began to turn against Willie, as members of the media and police began questioning the chances of him just happening to find the awards in the first place. You see, it turned out that Fulgir knew one of the suspects in passing, a revelation that wouldn't be so surprising in a small town, and since Fulgir spent so much time near those docks where the crime initially occurred, but his hero status was quickly diminished in the eyes of many. While Full Gear was fully exonerated by the actual criminals later on, and his alibi proved his innocence, the sheen on the newfound fame was quickly lost. And that $50,000 reward? Well, after buying himself a new car, Willie would travel across state lines to buy a house in his hometown to retire peacefully and escape his newfound fame that had quickly turned to infamy. Fearing an attack and robbery, Fulgier would stow his winnings in his safe at home. When he returned a few days later, he had discovered that his house had been robbed and safe stolen. So much for a Hollywood ending. And maybe the tragic story of Willie Fulgier is a bit of a lesson for us all. As society looked to the new millennium as a sign that times were changing, for many, it quickly became clear that the future, instead of showing signs of progress, simply showed signs of the same old, same old. It is no coincidence that in this zeitgeist, the most dangerous event for the film industry occurred. It wasn't the theft of the statues, or the rise of piracy, or even the lowering Oscar night ratings. See, it turns out that Hollywood's greatest threat came from within. It was TV itself. At the beginning of 1999, HBO aired the most important and consequential product in television history with the debut of The Sopranos. In it, James Gandolfini's Tony Soprano collapses by his pool in the middle of a panic attack. Surrounded by the usual trappings of wealth, such as a happy family, a large house, a nice car, Tony was the embodiment of the stereotypical American dream success story. But what causes Tony's distress? It turns out that he realized, maybe too late, that he may have come in at the end when the best is over. I don't know. The morning of the day I got sick, I've been thinking. It's good to be in something from the ground floor. I came too late for that. I know. But lately I'm getting the feeling that I came in at the end. The best is over. It turns out that the American dream that so many fleetingly chased in society and on film not only was not all it cracked up to be, but maybe it had never existed at all. Twenty-two years later, is anyone really arguing with this? With this in mind, is it really that surprising that so many bleak, cynical films dominated 1999? Whatever the reason, the results were pretty clear. 1999 ranks, to this day, as one of the finest and most consequential movie years in film history. Wow, okay, bit of a downer there, sorry. We're going we're gonna to pick things up a little bit more. Uh, I hate to kind of harp on sad news, but I really felt this theme of counterculture, anti-establishment, and disillusionment in this year's biggest films, and really felt that this idea resonates now more than ever. What a great year to kick off our new series of Reelin' in the Years. I hope that you enjoyed everything, and it at least made you rethink your favorite movies as well. Thank you for sticking with me to the end. Uh, We're going to finish off here by asking, where will we travel to next week? Let's spin the giant electronic wheel to find out. Here we go. Round and round it goes, where it stops, nobody knows. Well, I might. Maybe I recorded this earlier and already know the answer. Maybe I'm faking the suspense and already have the year chosen. Maybe I'm not really spinning a wheel at all, but instead inserting a wheel sound to make you think that I am spinning something. The wheel that is invisible to everyone but myself has landed on 2009. That's right, folks. In two weeks, we will dive into the Oscar films of 2009. Of course, the ceremony was held in 2010, but you know what? We're not going to go down that rabbit hole again. I hope that you not only enjoyed the show, but will join us again here at Reelin' in the Years in two weeks' time for our new 2009 episode. You can find all my work at mmmovies.ca, that's mmmovies.ca, where I have some of the latest movie reviews, op-eds, and movies you might have missed. You will also find any podcast updates on that site, as well as all the previous episodes. You can find this podcast on Spotify or Google Podcasts or on the website as well. Do you disagree with some of my picks? Upset that I didn't talk about the floating plastic bag in American Beauty enough? Want to give me suggestions for your 2009 choices? Well, you can do all that and more by sending your questions, concerns, and opinions to me at mmmovies30. That is mmmovies30 at gmail.com. Or you can send a comment over the website. Or you can follow me at Twitter at mmmovies3. If you are living in the Montreal region, you can also find my weekly print column of movies you might have missed in the Vaudreuil dorion newspaper, Your Local Journal. Find out how to find your copy of the paper, or even get your hands on a subscription at yourlocaljournal.ca. Really want to join the conversation? Anyone who feels that there is a criminally underrated movie, or would just like to make an argument for it included on the next Reeling in the Year's Oscar re-ranking podium, Feel free to message me for a future segment of Making the Case, where you can join me in conversation or just politely ask me to review a movie for you uh, that you feel needs more love and respect. I hope to see you all in two weeks time for 2009 for a new list of films in the new millennium. Until then, all the best and as always, happy streaming.